0: I'm glad to be here, thank God for the opportunity and the invitation, and uh, I pray that God will help us as we study into his word today. Now, I I will say this before I begin, this patch on the side of my neck, I had a skin cancer and had it removed. It was maybe a bad timing, but getting into the uh, dermatologist was not an easy thing. I went ahead and had it done, but if you're wondering what that is, it has a few stitches, and uh, it was a skin cancer that was removed. Thank God for his goodness to each one of us, and uh, Brother Brian uh, preached uh, Wednesday evening on listening, and uh, he brought a lesson on listening, and uh, he used several scriptures, and And one of the scriptures he used was, he that hath an ear, let him hear. And I want to encourage you this morning to listen to what I have to say. Not because I'm saying it, but because I believe that you need to hear it. And I believe that God does want you to hear it. And I pray that each one of us will pay heed to whatever part of the lesson may apply to us. Before I begin, would you stand? I'm going to read the scripture, pray, and then you can be seated. I entitled my lesson, Understanding Paul's and Barnabas' Disagreement and Separation. Understanding Paul's and Barnabas' Disagreement and Separation. I'm reading out of Acts, the 15th chapter, beginning in verse number 35. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname is Mark. And Paul thought not good to take him with them as he departed from them in Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was sharp between them, and they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark, and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas, and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Father, I ask that you'll help me as I preach here this morning, and Father, that I may say something that'll be of benefit to this congregation, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This passage of scripture describes to us an incident in the early church between two of the leaders in the early church. This uh, occurred at Antioch. And if you know anything about the history of the book of Acts, Antioch was the first uh, large uh, Gentile church. And uh, Barnabas had been a leader there and we'll read a little later where he went and invited Paul to come to Antioch and to help him out. At the time that I read here, the first missionary journey had been completed. Bartimus and Paul had uh, went on a missionary journey, starting in Cyprus and then going to several people, places that we would call the Middle East today. And They had returned from that, and uh, this is sometime after that. We don't know exactly when, but it said some days after Paul said unto Barnabas. And I want to first of all look at some background of this passage of Scripture. I think you need to know a little bit about the players in this passage and a little bit about the background to be able to understand it. And I want to look at it. There are three main players here, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. All of them uh, were leaders in the early church. And uh, let's look at them. Who was this Barnabas? Uh, Barnabas was not his real name. That was his nickname. He, his real name was Joas. J-O-S-E-S. In Acts 4, chapter 36, verse, it said, and Joas, who by the apostles were sure, was sure named Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus. Barnabas, as I said, was his nickname. You know, you get nicknames according to your character or what people see when they look at you. I was a machinist, a part of my life, and working in a machine shop and a journeyman and so on. But anyway, they called me Careful Ken. And uh, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, anytime that they had something that required care and real close work, uh, you know, some work in the machine shop is in fractions, and that gives you a plus or minus thousandths, some are in decimals, and I give you plus or minus uh, ten thousandths, and then some are, are down to even closer than that. And when they had a real close job, they, they, they gave it to me. And that's how I got my nickname. Well, Barnabas was like that. In the early church, Barnabas was one of those that had offered his property uh, and uh, sold all of his property and gave the, the full sum unto the relief of the poor in the church of Jerusalem. And Barnabas, it says here, the word Barnabas, it gives the interpretation of what it is. It says the son of consolation. And this, re- this tells us a little bit about the character of Barnabas. He was a person that was able to console, to encourage, and to help uh, people that were around him. And Barnabas was a man gifted by God as an encourager. I mean, that was his calling. Not all of us are called to the same thing. And uh, and even as a preacher, we're not called to the same thing. And Barnabas was gifted by God to be an encourager. And it was for this reason that he was chosen by the church in Jerusalem to go to Antioch and to encourage these new Gentile Christians. In Acts, the 11th chapter, I read in verse 22 through 26. Then tidings of these things. And the tidings of these things is referring to the Gentiles accepting the gospel in Antioch. Then the tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which is in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all. That word, exhorted, means encouraged. He was an encourager. He, He was a son of consolation or a son of encouragement. And he encouraged them all. That with purpose of heart, they would uh, cleave unto the Lord. He encouraged people to hold on to God. That's what he was, that was his calling as an encourager to stay faithful, to stay saved, to hold on to the Lord and not allow temptation or difficulty to deter you in your service for the Lord. And then it says, for he was a good man full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Here again is telling us that Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man of faith, a man who had confidence in God. And because of his ministry, much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus, for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, Barnabas was sent to Antioch to encourage the people, and he was successful in that. And the work grew so much, there was much people added, it grew so much that it was more than he could do alone. And so he went to Tarsus, which was the hometown of the Apostle Paul. At this time, he was called Saul of Tarsus. Uh, He changed his name, or in the scriptures, his name became Paul. And he went to Tarsus, and he found Paul, and brought him back to Antioch. And it was at Antioch where Paul really launched his ministry among the Gentiles. And so this was a a great event in the early church. It was a turning point, so to speak. This is when the uh, Gentiles began to come into the church. Up until this time, the church was 98% Jewish. They were Jewish converts. But at this time, they begin. The Gentiles begin to come in in numbers. Uh, this was not the first time Gentiles came in. Cornelius was uh, among those first. Now, Paul came to Antioch and worked with Barnabas. They were they were co-workers. Barnabas, I assume, was an older man. And he was the leader at this time. And Paul was, was uh, his assistant or co-laborer. Well, after a period of time, the church at Antioch was burdened to go spread the gospel farther among the Gentiles. And in Acts 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church to undertake what we refer to as the first missionary journey. Acts 13, verse 1 through 3. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas. Barnabas is named as first. And Simeon, he was called Niger. And Lucas of, of Cyrene. And uh, Manon, which had been brought up with Herod the teachar. And Saul, Saul is named last. And these men were leaders in the church at Antioch. And as they assembled to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Here these men, these leaders that are mentioned here, they were in a time of prayer and fasting and God spoke to them through the Holy Spirit and said, I want you to separate Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. And when they had fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, they sent him, they sent them away. They, the first place they went to after they were commissioned by the church to go and preach to other Gentiles, the first place they went was Cyprus. I assume they went there because that was Barnabas's home. That's where he, that was his uh, hometown, so to speak. But they began there and then they went to other places throughout uh, what we call the Middle East and uh, they began their first missionary journey. Now this brings us up to our text Uh, in the 15th chapter. Paul. This is, is of course, after they had returned from the first missionary journey some time ago. And Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, after the first missionary journey, they continued to work preaching and teaching the Word of God in Antioch. And then some days after, we don't know how long, but sometime after that, Paul suggested to Barnabas, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city. And what he was doing, Paul was saying, let, let's go back and retrace our ch- steps that we did on the first missionary journey. Let's go see how, how these churches are doing, how these Christians are doing and so that's what they did, and they, he suggested that they go and visit in every city, and he said, see how they do. And Barnabas had a determination, uh, and that was in the 37th verse, Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose sure name is Mark. John Mark. John Mark, uh, of course, is the author of the fourth gospel. And uh, I'll talk about him momentarily. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. But Paul disagreed with him. And it says in the 38th verse, And Paul thought it not good to take him with them, because he had departed from them on the first missionary journey. So we see here that uh, Paul... um, didn't want to take John Mark. And the reason he didn't want to take John Mark is because John Mark, when they they faced some persecution, John Mark deserted them and returned back home to Jerusalem. And Paul thought he was untrustworthy and that he should not go with them because he had failed, his courage had failed him. Now, the contention was sharp between them, and I, I looked that word sharp up in its original language, and uh, it meant that it was passionate and sincere. Their disagreement over this was uh, a was, uh, uh, very strong disagreement whether to take John Mark with them. And so it was not a doctrinal disagreement. Okay, it was not. It was not a uh, something that had happened in either one of these men's lives, but it was a disagreement over another Christian, another person, and they disagreed on on how he ought to be treated, accepted, et cetera. And the contention was so sharp that they divided asunder one from another. Now Barnabas did take John Mark, and Paul chose Silas who had came with them from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they uh, went in a different direction. How are we going to understand this? There are two men, both of them full of the Holy Ghost, both of them good men, but they disagreed over how to treat another Christian. Let's look at John Mark. You know, John Mark came from an important family in Jerusalem. In fact, it was the home of John Mark's mother that there was a, there was, what, well, in the New Testament, they didn't have churches, okay? They didn't have church buildings. I'll put it that way. They didn't have church buildings. They they worshiped God in homes, and people that were rather well off, or at least had some money, and their house was big enough to for the church together for worship, they, they had what was called a house church. And John Mark's mother, her house in Jerusalem was one of those house churches. Acts, the 12th chapter and the 12th verse said, and when he, that's Peter, when he had considered the thing, and by the way, this is when Peter was miraculously delivered out of prison, uh, had been condemned to die the next day, and uh, God miraculously delivered him, and when he considered this thing, he came to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, whose sure name was Mark, where many were gathered together in prayer. Uh, that when, when Peter was in prison, people gathered in John Mark's mother's home to pray for him. And I just mentioned that because it shows that John was somewhat came from somewhat of an important family. Second thing, John Mark was a nephew of Barnabas. Mary was uh, Barnabas' sister. It tells us in Colossians 4:10, Marcus, which is actually Mark, sister son to Barnabas. And so John Mark was a nephew. And so. uh, Barnabas had a relationship with John Mark that the Apostle Paul did not. John Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. In fact, when Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch, they chose John Mark to go with them. So he was, he was their uh, servant and their helper in their first missionary journey. But partway into the journey, he returned to his mother's home in Jerusalem and for reasons that Paul believed showed a deficiency in Mark's character. tells us in Acts 13, 13, now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphilus and John departed from them, returned to Jerusalem." I looked that word up yesterday returned and some translated deserted I said, said all that John Mark was invited to go on the first missionary journey so he was he was somebody of some importance and he traveled with them until they came to this point in the first missionary journey. And because of the dangers and the persecutions and et cetera, he went back home to Jerusalem to his mother's house. And Paul, for that reason, believed that there was a deficiency in his character and he was not worthy. He was not worthy to go to them on what is called the second missionary uh, journey. Now, this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was so intense and passionate that they separated and went in different directions. Here's two men, (laughs) full of the Holy Ghost, and it isn't something between them about each other, but it's a third person. A third person. And their relationship, their uh, how that third person ought to be treated was the root of the problem of separation that came between them. How are we gonna understand this? Here's two men that definitely loved each other had been through all kinds of things together, had uh, served the Lord faithfully at Antioch for several years, had uh, went on the first missionary journey, had been blessed by God together in many ways. And here they come to this uh, situation. The reason why I'm mentioning that is... These two men did not have deficiency of character in themselves. (laughs) uh, I'll not read it, but in in the Bible, New Testament, both of them are called apostles. Barnabas and Paul are called apostles. And both of them, there is direct reference in the Scriptures that they were both full of the Holy Spirit. But they could not agree on whether or not to allow John, because of his failure, to accompany them on this second missionary journey. Now, part of the answer is in the disposition of these two men. Part of the answer. Barnabas, as I've already pointed out to you, Barnabas is, is, the very word Barnabas means son of consolation. His name was really joas, J-O-S-E-S. Probably it's a Greek form of Joseph. But anyway, Barnabas was characterized by a more forgiving attitude than the Apostle Paul. I mean, it was it was his disposition. It was his nature. I mean, that's who he was. And so it was easier for him to take John Mark and give him what we might call a second chance. But Paul, on the other hand, was more concerned about the trustworthiness of John. Paul did not consider John to be trustworthy. He, w- he was not willing to put trust in him again because of his failure. And Paul, therefore, was stricter in his evaluation of John Mark than what uh, Barnabas was. Now, listen to me. Listen. Both Paul and Barnabas had scriptural principle for their argument. Both of these men could have brought up scriptures for their actions and their behavior and their how they treated John Mark. Barnabas was endeavoring to help John Mark regain his courage to face adversity. Uh, in Galatians, it, this is a biblical principle, I think you already know, but Galatians 6.1 said, Brethren, if, any, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted." And John, uh, Barnabas had this principle. This, this was his, he's trying to restore this brother. And uh, by the way, uh, from subsequent history, Barnabas was successful in doing so. And even Paul acknowledged it later in life in 2 Timothy, which is one of the last books the Apostle Paul re- wrote. It said, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me in the ministry. Here Paul is recognizing that John was profitable. He was somebody of value now and in the work of God. And he was instructing Timothy to bring Mark with him when he come to visit him. Paul also, on the other hand, had scriptural principle behind his argument. The Bible warns us about putting confidence in an unworthy person. And uh, Proverbs 25, 19 is just one verse. But it said, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. Putting confidence in someone who is unworthy of that confidence or who's an unfaithful person it's like having a broken tooth. If you ever have a tooth break, I had one, had it capped. Uh, you can't eat <laughs> with a broken tooth. It's painful. And that's what the writer was talking about. Or a foot out of joint, uh, you can't get along very good. But my point is this. Both of these men had scriptural principle for their actions. For their argument, they had script both of them, but they were somewhat opposite principles, and this is a this is a problem. Uh, what was the problem here? Well, first of all, it's not a matter of which one had was scripture correct. I mean, if you'd say, "Well, let's go to the Bible," well, you will go to the Bible and you find both of them's right. Sometimes it takes more than the knowledge of the Bible to resolve problems. It takes what we call wisdom. Wisdom is is different from knowledge in this this respect. Wisdom is the ability to know how to apply the knowledge that you have. When to apply it. How to apply it. And so wisdom is a thing my friend, that have you ever seen Christians, both of them, having scriptural found uh, their scriptures and they throw scripture at each other? You know, uh, they ain't gonna get you anywhere. I mean, if, if all we do is throw scripture at one another, we're never gonna resolve nothing. Believe me, I I, I speak from experience. Yeah, it's it's more than a matter of who is scripture correct and the reason why is because both of them had scriptural pr- principle for their decision and action the disagreement was over which biblical principle should apply to the situation excuse me just a minute I know I'm speaking plain, but I intend to, <clears throat> and I know that you're reading between the lines, and I intended for you to do that, but I have something on my heart that I do want to say to you, and I hope that you listen to me this morning. The disagreement was over which biblical principles should apply to the situation. This difference of opinion resulted in a difference of their decision and their action. And which in turn resulted in a separation. They, they were no longer able to work together. These two men, Barnabas and Paul, at this point, they not able to work together anymore. They... You know, I don't know whether you know this, but there must be a certain level of agreement before people can work together. You take people, if, if they don't have a certain level of agreement and they spend their time fighting one another, they ain't going to do any good to the kingdom of God. I, I preached uh, at the Washington School way back there. And those of you that was at the beginning uh, heard me. But I preached a message at that that school when this people that make up this congregation was at a point of decision. And I preached on the subject, when is it right to separate? And I used the Bible story of Abraham and Lot, and Abraham and Lot, they were living in the same area they had. Both of them were rather rich in, in, in animals, herds, and so on, and their, their uh, shepherds were fighting, and Abraham, he was a man of wisdom, and he said, this is not good Be better for us to separate and said, If you take, if you go that way, I'll go this way. If you go that way, then I'll go this way. And he gave Lot the choice. And Lot made, of course, a bad choice because he was just thinking in terms of monetary value. But there must be a certain level of agreement before people can work together. But that does not mean my friend, that you treat one another as if you're not saved. Uh, See, that's the problem. When people can't work together and they come to a place that Barnabas and Paul did, that they they had to separate. They would, neither one of them done very much good if they had traveled together. They separated. And God blessed both of them. God bless both. Now, we don't have the details of Barnabas' travel, but we do of Paul's, and the reason we do is because the author of the book of Acts traveled with Paul. That's why we have his history and not Barnabas's. But Barnabas' was blessed, and John Mark done well, as I've already pointed out. These two men continued to respect each other, and, and Paul actually respected John Mark as far as it went. He just did not think he was trustworthy until he proved himself. And then Paul recognized John is trustworthy. Now, if these two men had turned against each other and claimed Barnabas said, Paul's not saved because of his attitude toward John Mark, Or Paul would have said Barnabas is not a saved man because of his willingness to help John. But too many times we do that, and I know why. We want to justify ourselves and make people or try to help them think we're in God's will. But the truth is that both of these men were in the will of God. Both of them is in the will of God. They just was looking at the same situation through different lens. Listen to me. Separation was based on two different biblical principles: forgiveness and accountability. That's the names I give to them. Forgiveness and accountability. Each of these biblical principles have their place in the kingdom of God. Accountability is a biblical principle. And that biblical principle safeguards the church from tolerating sin. The church needs protection from from appearing to tolerate sin. And the reason we need protection from... People thinking we're tolerating sin is because our actions are tied up, my friend, in the honor or in the truth of the gospel. And if people get the opinion that we're tolerating sin, I'm going to tell you our reputation, our our, uh, influence is going to really diminish. I preached to you, I think maybe the last time I was here or next to the last time. But recently, I preached to you on a good name and how important a good name and a good reputation is. And accountability is a biblical principle calling people to account. It's a biblical principle, my friend, that safeguards the church from appearing to tolerate sin. If people get the idea we're tolerating sin... They, they ain't going to want to be a part of that. At least anybody that loves holiness is not going to want to be a part. And then forgiveness, on the other side, is also a biblical principle. And forgiveness allows for the restoring of the fallen when they have committed sin. You know, it's not every Christian that lives sinless from the time they're saved. In fact, I've asked this question, I've asked it here, and I know what the answer would be. But I've asked the question lots of different places, revivals that are preached in, camp meetings i preached in, local congregations. I've asked the question, is there anyone here that you've been saved at least for one year and you never had to ask God to forgive you for something you said or done? Raise your hand. And I've never had a hand raised. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't anybody like that. I just haven't met one. But what it does show is that all of us have failures in our life. And John tells us in 1 John, and and he, he laid it down so straight that, my friend, that a Christian does not sin. I'm not going to go into that. You already know those passages, or ought to. But then he says, you know, if a man sin. That if means there is a possibility. If a man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, forgiveness is also a biblical principle. A, it allows the restoring the fallen when they have sin. Now, these two principles are somewhat opposite, qualities, but each one of them is beautiful in its time. You know, there's lots of things that are, are beautiful if they're in season. But if they're out of season, they're ugly, <laughs> right? You know this. Let me just read it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. Now, the thing I want you to notice as I read this are these are opposites. These are things that are opposites. But each one of them is right in its own time, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to rend, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that which wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God has given To the sons of men. To be exercised in it. He hath made everything. Beautiful in its time. Also he hath set. The world in their heart. So that no man. Can find the work that God. uh, Maketh from the beginning to the end. The last phrase means we don't understand everything God's doing. But. God's made everything beautiful in its time. (laughs) Accountability and forgiveness are opposites, but both of them are biblical principles, and they're both beautiful in its time. But it can be very ugly when it's out of season. Now listen to me. It's a good thing for any congregation to have both of these kinds of Christians a a mixture, a diversity. It is a good thing for a church, on one hand, to have Christians that are disposed to call people to accountability, and on the other hand, to have other Christians who are disposed to forgive a person who has failed. If you've heard me preach very long, you probably heard me say this. Truth is like a high tower. Truth is like a high tower. And on each side of that tower is a guideline that holds that in balance. On one side, it's pulling this way. On the other side, it's pulling that way. But it holds it straight. Truth is like that. If you... The truth about God, let's just take mercy and justice. Mercy and justice both are characters of God. God is just and God is merciful. But they're opposite. The Bible said mercy rejoices against judgment. Judgment gives a person what they deserve. Mercy gives them what they don't deserve. If you cut off one of those, you cut off justice, and it pulls it over here to mercy, too far, you'll be forgiving things that shouldn't be forgiven. On the other hand, if you cut off mercy, justice will be pulling, and they'll be demanding things that are more than should be demanded. I don't know whether you understand what I'm saying. But diversity along these lines, opposites in the Bible. I mean, in God's character, there's that. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a diversity. It's things that are, but they're blended in the right way. There's a balance. It's diversity along these lines that keep the church balanced a church becomes out of balance when it has a vast majority of members who are strongly disposed to hold people accountable for their sins or failures without giving them much opportunity for forgiveness and restoration i've seen churches like that well the church at ephesus uh, in revelation is i mean that they were they were strong for the truth There were were people among them that claimed to be apostles and they found them to be liars. There were people that uh, their their deeds uh, were immoral and God said, you hate this? And I hate it too. I mean, they were strong in doctrine and accountability, but they was weak in love. And Jesus said, in your, in your strong, being strong in accountability, I have somewhat against thee. And somewhat means I approve of much you're doing, but there is one thing, and that is that you've left your first love. You were weak in love. I, I'm using this these illustrations, trying to help you see what I'm saying here, I hope you can. On the other hand, the church becomes out of balance when it has a vast majority of members who are strongly deposed and quick to forgive without requiring thorough repentance and restitution to be accepted again. We can be too quick to forgive. Somebody said forgiveness is unconditional. That's a lie. That is a lie. Condition is never unforgiveness in the Bible. It's never unconditional. God's forgiveness of us is conditioned upon repentance, faith, restitution. If we repent, God will forgive us. But God just doesn't, if that were true, God could just wave his hand, forget the whole, forgive the whole world of sin, require nothing. Why does he require repentance? Because repentance is turning from loving yourself to loving God, turning from satisfying, seeking your own pleasure in sin to following God in holiness. And without that, It'd be of no value to forgive a person. Because you just have to turn around and do it again tomorrow and tomorrow. And some people's Christianity seems to amount to something like that. But forgiveness is not unconditional. Amen? Now, I've known of incidents in my experience in the church that these things were some of the root problems of division. The truth is that what I'm describing here can tear a congregation apart. It can tear a congregation apart. Both sides having scriptural ground for their stand and and their decision and their action and they... Uh, are unwilling to consider anything else. (laughs) The truth is that each side of an argument can have scriptural principle to back it up. And people, people do that in the church. Believe me, friend, I know what I'm talking about. They throw scriptures at one another. You know? just throw scriptures for their position. That doesn't resolve anything, believe me. It doesn't resolve anything. But people that have, they have a scriptural principle that backs up their position and decisions, but they are so strongly committed to their principle that they're unwilling to consider what the opposition or the principle That the opposition has. On the one hand, some simply want to forgive and move on as if it's no big deal. And on the other hand, others are demanding the offender to confess the sins that he knows he is not guilty of. And both of those biblical principles, accountability, And forgiveness must be applied. Listen to me now. Both of those those biblical principles, accountability and forgiveness, must be applied in their proper time, or a scriptural resolution of the problem will never be achieved. I got some words of advice to each side. You know, I'm, I'm a person that's known uh, to to kind of take a balanced stand. Now, I've had I've had preachers one time. A preacher told me he said, "Brother Yoder, well, sometimes I hear you preach and said you're getting after the conservatives and pointing out to them their failures and and their mistakes." And said, you, you lay it on them. And then said, other time, you're getting after the liberals and, and pointing out to them there. And uh, he said to me, it's a wonder you have anybody to fellowship with. <laughs> and uh, that's who I am. That's who I am. I look at the big picture. I try to. You know what my number one prayer is from the time? You know what I've come to the altar seeking God for from the time I was a young Christian in my first year of serving God? You know what the number one thing that I've come to the altar and prayed for? You, You don't, but I'll tell you. I've come to pray for wisdom. To pray for wisdom. To ask God, I pray for both knowledge and wisdom, actually. But I pray for wisdom. Listen to me. To those who are predisposed to forgive the offense and move on when a Christian does something that brings a reproach upon his character it is not a small matter the reason why it's not a small matter is because it is bound up in the reputation of the gospel therefore it must be dealt with thoroughly. Unconditional forgiveness, I've already told you that, is not taught in the Word of God. Forgiveness is always conditional. Forgiveness is only offered to those who are willing to repent, believe, and in some cases, make restitution. To those on that side, that's my advice. To those that are predisposed to hold people to accountability, let me say this to you. You must be careful not to go too far in your demands on the offender. You could cause the offender... To become overwhelmed with grief and hopelessness of ever being restored to fellowship. Listen to me. Be careful that you're not more concerned in condemning than in restoring. Now, listen to me. Somebody said you're just a compromiser. Hey, if you knew my reputation, you would not say that. I preach against sin and I preach accountability but I also preach mercy and forgiveness. Let me read a verse and then I'm going to close here shortly. This is the writings of the Apostle Paul. The church had problems, as uh, those of you that know anything of the biblical history of the church, you know that they had problems, all kinds of problems, some that we would be surprised that they had. Okay, this is 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, and verse 16. Let me just go. The First Corinthians, there was a man that was guilty of sexual immorality, and Paul uh, instructed the church to excommunicate him and put him out of fellowship, and and the church responded to that. Now this is Second Corinthians, and Paul says this in the sixth verse of the second chapter: sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So the counterwise, you ought rather to forgive him and to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Therefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love towards him. For this end also did I write, and he's talking about his first letter, that I might know the proof of you whether you be obedient in all things. He was saying that in his demands he was testing their obedience. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sake, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us For we are not ignorant of his devices. To those of us that are predisposed to accountability, let us be careful that we don't go too far (laughs) and demand too much. This can become, our stand for holiness can become a tool of Satan If it goes too far, if it's not tempered with love and mercy, it can go too far, believe me. You've got to be careful not to go too far, as I said. The church at Corinth, uh, what the church had done in the way of discipline correction was sufficient. And Paul was saying that now it's time to forgive the offender lest he be overcome with grief, swallowed up. (laughs) You know, there there is a time to disfellowship somebody. There is a time, my friend, when offenses are committed, there's a time of discipline and correction. But it should lead the person to a time of repentance. And if the person is repentant and the work is thorough, then there should be forgiveness. (laughs) Amen? I don't know whether to tell this story or not. I'm going to. When I was a very young preacher, about 19 years old, 18 maybe, 18 or 19 I began preaching when I was 17. But as a young preacher, I became an associate pastor. And I came into the church. The former pastor, not the pastor that was there when I became associate, but the former pastor had been guilty of sexual immorality. He had an affair with the woman who played the piano. Now it was known, and uh, uh, he he uh, was sorry for what he'd done and all of that. And it was during a, a revival meeting, I think on Friday night, but anyway, during a revival meeting. That he came in back to the church. The church that he had failed in. And uh, after church, they they went to him. The man that was head on the board of trustees went to him. And they had a meeting. Now, I was just a young man, you know, 18. And I went into the meeting. I had nothing to do with the meeting. I mean... I was really an observant. There was four or five preachers there, and they just utterly condemned that man. And he, he begged them. He said, let me come to church. He said, I won't pray. I won't, I won't uh, uh, testify. He said, I just want to prove myself. I just want to prove myself. I I want to prove to the people that that I have repented. I'm sorry. And they would not. (laughs) Absolutely, they said, no, you go to church somewhere else. He said, this is where it happened, and I want to prove to the people that I betrayed. I want to prove to them. And... They said no. Now, they were in agreement, those five, but I I never had a voice in it. But he broke down. He was crying. He was begging. I never forgot that. And one thing he said has stuck with me ever since. He looked at those men and said, you're not dead yet. You're not dead yet you don't know what may happen in your life. Of those five men, three of them, two of them fell into homosexual activity later. One of them was living in adultery at the time that, he, that I'm talking about. So easy to judge, right? That has to be tempered too. You ain't dead yet, friend. What you give out may be measured back to you again. How you treat others may be measured back to you again before you end your journey. So be careful. So on both sides of this, I'm a plean. <laughs> I'm plean with you. The chance of a church finding balance between these two principles is a rare occasion today. <laughs> oh, man. The problem with both sides is either they overemphasize their principle or they are, apply it at the wrong time. Much evil and damage as caused by this problem among God's people. As Paul said in the 11th verse, lest Satan should get an advantage on us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. But too many times Christians act like they're ignorant. The devil can take advantage of situations like this and do much harm. And sometimes harm that can never be corrected. As I said, I'm pleading to those on both sides of this issue. If you've taken an inflexible and unyielding stand. That you think you have biblical principles for your stand. And you probably do. You probably do have biblical principles for your stand. But I want you to recognize that people on the other side may also have scriptural principles as well as you. Consider, consider the opposite biblical principle more honestly and more deeply than what you have. Now I know I've spoken plain here this morning, but That's what's on my heart. I've done my part. Now it's up to you. And I don't know how and what and exactly God is going to instruct you to do. But I know that Satan can take advantage of good people and separate them. Tear a congregation apart. Where a little bit of wisdom would go a long way.